Thank you for tuning in to the Kathy Lee Parker Show. Today we're going to be talking about what motivates addiction. And with me today, my guest is Patrick Adams. He's a social worker here in the Salt Lake City area, and uh, he's going to be talking to us about the issues when it motivates people to be addicted to things, especially drugs. So welcome, Patrick, to my show. Uh, thank you so much, Kathy. Glad to be here. You're welcome. And first of all, tell us a little bit about yourself because you got a lot of titles behind your name. Sure. I'm a licensed clinical social worker with a substance use disorder uh, certificate as well. I've been practicing in the Salt Lake area since uh, 98. I started my career working in uh, at the Odyssey House of Utah Residential Treatment Center and then found my way into the legal system doing forensic social work. Uh -huh. I did that for about 15 years, um, and then I went into the private sector and started running and kind of managing residential and outpatient treatment centers. And then now I've uh, found myself back in the forensics realm, and I'm doing uh, forensic social work once again. Oh, okay. And what do you see going on out there? I mean, is it is it calm down, or is it just climbing? Is there a lot of addictions when it comes to drugs and uh just they just can't seem to get off of it or is it generation after generation yeah the the instance of substance use actually with the pandemic has increased significantly we've got a lot of domestic violence and a lot of other drug related uh charges and filings that have taken place in the last year or so and it's kind of been a, a pressure cooker to kind of test the waters for family function and how well people get along with each other when they're in you know confined areas for extended periods of time Usually families, you know, have, have school and work and other activities, soccer playing, whatever. And they don't really have, I mean, they can get out there in the world and sort of mix up their experience. But this COVID has been really unusual in that it's sort of, it's sort of been a litmus test for family function and the, the uh, weaknesses, if you will, or the deficits in, in some of the family structures have been revealed because they've been, they've been in a pressure cooker in terms of having to manage each other and manage, you know, close space for extended periods of time. It's been quite fascinating. Wow. That's fascinating. Just hearing what you just said is like, no way. And, and I think it's they're on drugs to deal with each other. Well, I, I, I don't mean, I, charts. yes. And I <laughs> noticed um, there's a, my little favorite coffee place. I like to go and chill. And of course I had to wear a mask and everything to get in there. But, um, I noticed the, um, the alcohol store was just, was busy. People were going in and out, in and out, in and out. And I'm like, oh, yeah. dang, what's going on? So I didn't realize, yes, the alcohol to keep the calmness or chill, I guess someone needs, but then they realize they're addicted to it. Right. Well, um, kind of, it's, it's more like, you know, they, their instance of, of, their boredom. Boredom is, is pretty high. You know, people are listless with this being stuck at home and everything and the social uh, social distancing. Mm -hmm. And so they would, you know, seek more a distraction or they would seek more, you know, uh, an altered state to deal with the boredom. And oftentimes that would lead to, you know, some some disruptive behavior and domestic violence and arguments mm -hmm. and things like that. I mean, the vast majority of domestic calls anywhere uh, are alcohol related. The vast majority are alcohol related. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a police officer, it was a couple months ago, in the South Jordan, Utah area uh -huh. where I live at. It's a really nice area and I never imagined. He told me, oh, when it comes to 4th of July or 24th or any holiday summer parties, there's so much drama, so oh, much yeah. um, fighting. And I'm like, what? And I thought, maybe because they don't see their family for very long, and then they fight. <laughs> I I don't know. I I'm I don't mean to make a joke about it, but it's like I'm putting comedy into it. Where if you haven't seen your family for you know five years, and you get a gathering, and next you know you're arguing over something that happened five years ago, and next you know right. it's, you're in drugs and you know drinking too much alcohol, and your mind's going somewhere else. But um, yep. and. You mentioned to me earlier, well, let's go back a bit here. What is the most affected by addiction? I mean, or, or let's go do it this way. What is addiction? What would you call addiction? 
from you, you know, Patrick? That's a rich, there are standard answers, which which could be like, you know, a, a repetitive behavior that, you know, that is non-functional and, and you have, you know, negative consequences and yet you persist. But honestly, a much more approachable definition would, would simply be the, the um, seek, to seek relief from something you can't or don't know how to manage. Mm-hmm. And you, you seek to be relieved from the suffering of that. So if you have a life that, that you really can't manage the stress and you really can't manage um, the misery you feel and you take a substance and it alters your state where it's tolerable now, you don't have to manage it. You can just tolerate it. Then that's very appealing. And that generates that that makes you vulnerable to, to keep doing that. And if you keep doing that, then you eventually find yourself with a huge problem, which is called addiction. So sad. So sad. Oh, my gosh. Um I know there's all kinds of forms of addiction, and right now we're going to be talking about the um, abuse of alcohol and drugs and prescription, which is very, very important as well. But I also notice the addiction of food, you know, or overeating and things like that. But we can talk about that another time because I would love to have you come back because I know you have a lot to tell me especially when I was interviewing you for the come on my show, you have a lot to say. So we're going to be doing, this is going to be a continuing topic on addiction for the next, you know, especially through the holidays, because that's when addiction rises even higher um, due to depression sure. and stuff. But anyway, um, the, you know, this is really a sad topic to talk about. It really is. And um, I did some counseling a little bit with the Salt Lake City um, jail here in Salt Lake City a couple of years ago. And to my surprise, there are, um, of course, I was on the women's side, but it ended up being generation after generation of um you know, people will be involved in, in drugs and prescription drugs. And, and what makes me mad is that the person who started it, like their grandmother, never got caught. And then their mother never got caught. But the child gets caught and thrown in jail. You know what I mean? And it's like... Well, that's, can... that's, that's honestly kind of a good thing. And what I mean by that is, you know, in order for an addictive cycle to... to have a chance at, at getting better or ending you have to have a disrupting event you have to have something that stops the pattern or or disrupts your ability to continue to use and prime and oftentimes that's being incarcerated it's, it's going into custody mm-hmm. going into custody is incredibly useful in terms of recovery from addiction because it, it isolates the person from their environment it takes them out of the misery that they were in and it puts them into a contained and quote you know arguably safer environment where they can be, you know, medically treated and, and, you know, housed and fed and everything and stabilize and and detox. And then a social worker or a therapist or some kind of a case manager could come in and interview them and kind of discuss their options. And then of course I'll meet with an attorney and oftentimes the, the attorney can work a deal where uh, a treatment option becomes the sentence versus prison or or long stints of, of incarceration in jail. Mm-hmm. So going into custody is actually the, the starting point for, for many, many people for change and for an improved life, because that's that's the beginning of going into treatment. Oh, that's very good. few people, very few people out there um, who abuse and, and use drugs seek treatment on their own. And if they do, they typically do it when they're when they're absolutely bankrupt and in misery. And then they feel better. They stabilize and feel better. And then they stop going. Whereas a court-ordered person has to finish the full course of treatment to satisfy probation, and their prognosis for protracted recovery is much higher because they complete it and they go into aftercare and they have a, a, a more a longer experience in the recovery environment. And, and as a side note, which is an incredibly important note to make, is that environment pretty much dictates everything. So wh- where you are and what's around you, that gives you the options and choices to what you're going to do. And if your environment is supportive and healthy and full of like-minded people trying to get better, your prognosis is exponentially higher than if you check into a rehab for a little while, feel better, you're not court-ordered or anything, you decide you're not quite, you decide to feel good enough to leave, you leave, you go back to the environment that you came from without any uh, support services, you're, you're, you're more than likely, probably almost 100%, going to go back to the same behavior. Because the environment's just going to select for that. Yeah, yeah, I know. So going into custody, 
Yeah, so going into custody is actually oftentimes a very good thing, despite how miserable it is. Mm -hmm. Yes, I noticed that with um, um, years ago, I got out of it because it made me too depressed. I'm not a good <laughs> counselor, you know, in that in the drugs and and things like that. It just it wasn't me. I mean, of course, I've always I was the middleman counsel with them and then I'd send them over to you guys you know <laughs> because it's it was just too much it's you know but I try to help them with the environment and like you said yeah but some of them can't help it they they go home and it's the environment that they you know and then I have tried to talk them a few few um, women I helped them get out of the environment that they were in it was only just a few, yep. and it's so sad. Society, we got to help them get out of that environment, you know. Well, the old the old AA saying is, "All you have to change is everything," and it's it's there's a, there's a point to that. There's actually some wisdom to that. Mm -hmm. If you are in an environment that doesn't support um, connection, honesty, uh, love, you know those types of things, you know, progressive thought, progressive movement, you know. It doesn't have to be, you know, a bed of roses. It just has to be better than where you were mm -hmm. to have a chance at having a better life. But it has to be different. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I notice, you know, even I hate to say it too, some I mean, in my family, you know, they go back to the environment. But I think it might be because it's the only thing they know. And it's the only uh, resource they have. Yeah, it's the only resource they oftentimes it's all they have, you know, and and. It, that's that's where the real challenge in in this work is. It's to you know teach someone how to set a boundary with what's dysfunctional and destructive to them, even though like their parents or their loved ones or their other family members, you know they don't want to not have them in their lives, even though it might be a very destructive relationship. So the, so it, it, it evolves, treatment evolves into trying to teach them how to contain the liability. And to manage the dysfunction, to not succumb to the dynamic, and then to also create a private space for themselves, where they can have some, like go to AA meetings, have a peer group, have a have an aftercare group, you know, have an alumni group, things like that, where you can go and, and be around the people that will reinforce the positive direction in your life, versus going back to where you know it's so largely negative. family members, yeah, yeah, that they're not they're not treated. Families addiction doesn't arise from the individual; it arises from their environment. It arises from having from suffering, from misery, from feeling isolated, from not having human connection and feeling the, you know, the ability to be vulnerable and bond and those types of things. That's where addiction comes from. It doesn't come from poverty. I mean, there's a lot of addiction in poverty because it's so environmentally challenging. However, the rates of addiction are also prevalent in very wealthy families and right. very wealthy strata society. Where they're lonely. They don't have they're lonely. Yeah, they're lonely. Yes. The child yes, is a lonely and right. it's, you know, my dad works all the time. My mom's gone to women's raised clubs. And, yeah. Yep. Raised by somebody else. It's not really there. You could care less about right. me if I skip school. Yeah. You know, the old, the old joke about how the, the, the four-year-old opens up the Christmas present and cares more about the box. Yes. Yes. Okay, so that's, that's, that's an analogy. That's like, you know, um, Rather than having a new bike, how about I just sit on dad's lap and we read a book together or we, we go play catch? That is far. The kids would rather have the parent with them doing nothing than have some item to play with. And that's that fades over time. And as adolescence kicks in and has distractions ensue and as video games, and everything take over. But ultimately, the, from zero to about 12 years old, the critical, critical development phases, you know, close contact with caregivers, with primary caregivers. That is what sets the stage for a hardy personality and someone who's resilient to drugs and whatnot and somebody who's vulnerable because their level of internal regulation and how well they've learned to understand themselves and how well they've learned to bond with others, that's what that that's the um, the, the telling factor in addiction. You know what? How you know what? I am grateful for my upbringing. I just remember my mother sitting down with the three of us and she would just read us a story. Do you know how valuable that still is today? And just remember yep. how that felt and how it was just wonderful and just hearing her oh, yeah. voice and or even yep. hear her sing around the house and things like that. Yep. Those things Absolutely. are so important. Then like you said, getting a new doll or or yeah. a playhouse or something like that. Or I remember a time where my father came out with my brother and helped him build a tree house 
Oh, he oh, remember yeah. that forever, and he still talks about oh, yeah. it. You know, there's little things, there's little things. It means so much to us, and it helps us with our upbringing. You know, that warm feeling, oh, and or our grandparents sits us on his lap and you know reads us a story. And those little bondings are so important. But then, what do we do with the children who are not getting that? You know, that's what hurts. And when the parent is on drugs. And the child right. sits back and sees, oh, you know, daddy and mom are smoking marijuana today. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I'm sure. in the presence of this, you know, and I'm playing with my doll, but nobody to play with me. Do you, do you know what I'm right. saying? Absolutely, yeah. Do we? Do you go in and help with those children? Do you go in and and um, help those children get more of some closure so they don't grow up to be like their parents? Well, I don't typically deal with, with children or with adolescents even. I deal with adults. And, okay. And, what I've, and, and so these young children who become adults and, and mm -hmm. have maladaptive strategies of dealing with suffering and, and, and discomfort and distress, what I do is I, I try to find places for them in the community where they can begin to bond with, again, like-minded people that are also trying to reconstitute and for the first time maybe learn how to be vulnerable and honest about what they understand about themselves or don't understand about themselves and receive feedback and mirroring and all those kinds of things. I try to plug them into resources where they can find, you know, communities of people, uh, alumni and whatnot from, from drug treatment centers mm -hmm. where they can kind of create that for themselves. I mean, our kind of like real passive motto is, you know, families, you're not born into a family. You go make one is if you weren't born into a family that is a family, then you got to go, you got to go make one. And mm -hmm. that's okay because there's a lot of people out there that need families. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my girlfriend's going to write this book about, um, and she said it's a true story because I didn't have a grandma, but I had a neighborhood of grandmas. There you go. <laughs> so See, and, that's, and I thought, okay, oh, that's good. That's good yeah. for a child who doesn't have that. But yeah, the same thing with an adult. I had somebody I just, I know right now, and, and he goes, Kathy, my father's gone, my mother's gone, and my brother and sister you know, doing their own thing. I just so lonely. And, uh, yep. and I said, well, you can make your own family. I'll be your family. You know, I'll be there your you aunt. And, and he smiled. And I said, I'll call you for Christmas and Thanksgiving. Yep, yep. <laughs> but the point is, is, it breaks my heart when I hear people say that they're young adults, you know. Right. And I thought, so what they wow. call What you're talking about are what's called protective factors. Okay. That That's what that is. So when you have... Like, for instance, I spent a lot of time at my at my best friend's house when I was in elementary school and junior high school because his family was way better than mine. So uh -huh. I had a much, much uh, better experience and more nurturing experience with his family and his mom and dad than I did with my own. Oh. That became a protective factor for me. And oh. What that is, is it's, it's you go out there and you find some resource or some person or some caregiver that can provide that guidance and support and fill that role. It doesn't have to be your, your biological parents or grandparents or any of that stuff. It doesn't have to be any of those people. It just has to be somebody that cares about you and that understands, you know, how to give you what you need. And more and or less listen, over time. And listen to you when they talk. Because sometimes yeah. people just want to be less heard and not lectured or anything like that. And um, well, let's get back to the druggy thing. I mean, I don't mean to say it like that, but the addiction part of drugs, it so breaks my heart. Um, we were talking earlier one-on-one -on -one where, um, you know, some of the drugs out there that the doctors prescribe to us, you know, are very addiction. You know, you get addicted to those and then you can't get off. Or right. I think it was, um, what's it called, cotton? What's it called? There's Oxycontin. Yeah. Oxycontin, where yep. I received some from having surgery, but it made me nauseated. And he told me a good yes. reason why it made me nauseated. And my husband had the same thing. It makes him nauseated. So you're saying something that was in our system that we're very well, lucky. Yeah, you're allergic to it. Some people, ah. no, no small number of people, I, I as well, I have an allergic reaction to opiates. Uh, itchy, sweaty, yes. nauseous. Yes, yes. Yeah. That is an allergic reaction. That that's your body not having the ability to really deal with that chemical well until your liver can process it out of your body. Mm -hmm. And and so and that's a good that that would be kind of a proxy uh, protective factor for people like us because we're not going to be opiate addicts because it just isn't our flavor. 
It isn't, it isn't going to work with our genetic profile. Our body doesn't have the right enzymes to break that down correctly or to, to, to use it correctly. So we're not going to have that be our drug of choice. Other right. people, it, they don't have that experience. Mm-hmm. Or if they do, they're, they, they use it enough because, you know, uh, an allergic reaction can be overcome by exposure. That, that's the main treatment for uh, allergies is exposure. Mm-hmm. You just, you know, you put tinctures of something in your system and your body learns how to deal with it, manage it, and it produces the right enzymes to break it down and boom, then you're no longer allergic. So some people just overcome that because the high is so worth it. And some people just don't. And I'm hearing that you wouldn't do that. And I wouldn't either because it's mm-hmm. just not comfortable. It's not, not pleasant enough or it's, it's too unpleasant rather to have to deal with all that. Patrick, so Patrick, yes. when I had my surgery on my shoulder, it was a shoulder surgery. And, um, I remember getting about 15 prescription drugs. I'm not kidding you. I lined it up on my counter and I'm like, uh-huh. okay, this one here I can't take. Let's try this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had to find the one that was, it was okay, but ew, yeah. I just didn't like it. And I mainly put, you know, put it in a bag and took it and got it, you know, disposed. But yeah. Um, yeah. after I was a little bit, you know, got better, but. I thought, dang, why would I need all this drugs? This is a waste. And yeah, I got good health insurance, yep. but it was a waste of money. And yep, uh, but yeah, and I can see where people can get hooked on all this stuff. And now I explain to you because I didn't understand why some people have surgery, like knee surgery, is what I hear a lot. When the person gets um, addicted to drugs off of knee surgery, and I kept scratching well, that, my head. That on. actually. That actually, again, it, it, that that's kind of like COVID in that, you know, when they have the feeling of euphoria that comes from that drug and they realize that the other parts of their life that they're not satisfied with can be left untended to and they're going to be fine with that. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the precursor of addiction is relief, relief from suffering, relief from from misery. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I worked with a, yeah, I worked with the narcotic strike force in Tooele for a while. And one of their uh, commanding officers uh, asked me to give a, a lecture on medically assisted therapy, suboxone and methadone and whatnot. So I did. And his reputation was one of being very moralistic and very hard nosed and very judgmental towards addicts. And so I was a little nervous that he asked me to come talk to his team. And so I did. And then he came up to me afterwards and he, he asked me if he could tell me a story. I said, absolutely. So he, he said, um, one day he had some abdominal pain and it was very, you know, it was very distressing and really painful. He goes to the emergency room and they give him some Percocet, which is an opiate. He takes it. The pain starts to you know, resolve a little bit and they send him home. Uh-huh. And he said, as he, as he pulled up to his driveway, he began to do what he always did, which is prepare himself to walk into the house and start yelling at everyone because uh-huh. the dishes aren't done. The homework's not done. Clothes are left out. So, you know, he just prepared himself to be the dad that yells like he always does. And so he, he said he walks up to the front door, he opens the door and he looked inside the house and exactly what he thought he would find. He found just total disarray and disorder. And the, then he walked through you know, the threshold and came into the living room. And he said a very, very strange thing began to, to occur to him. And that is that he didn't care. He was not angry. He was not upset. He, he was not in any way moved. He, did, he looked around, saw exactly what he thought he would see and didn't care. And he wondered what was different. And then it struck him like a lightning bolt. He, he said, I am on opiates right now. I am on opiates. I'm high on opiates. Uh-huh. He's like, this is what addiction is. It's, wow. it's the relief from, from suffering that you can't otherwise manage. That's what it is. It, it, and he taught me that. And I was just amazed with his insight. And that changed his whole philosophy and how he did his job as a strike or narcotic strike force officer mm-hmm. is to, to have – far greater empathy for the suffering of the addict than to judge them for their aberrant behavior. So I thought that was an incredibly revealing moment that he shared with me. Addiction is the relief of suffering with no other means possible. Wow. Wow. I could not say that any better. Yes. (laughs) And now I understand it too. I see it more different. A different light Mm -hmm. just came on and like, wow, be more of those. And it's so sad that he didn't care. And maybe that's why so many kids take, you know, um, get on drugs because they just don't want to hear their mom and dad scream or somebody yelling at them. Right. Yes, stressors beyond their capacity, stressors beyond their ability to manage that deeply affect them. They don't know what to do with it. They can't do anything with it. And they take this drug and it relieves that, that pressure. It relieves that stress. It relieves that suffering. It's actually really logical. You know, if, if I, Kathy, if I took your hand and held it over a flame and I would not let you take that hand away from the flame, but then I would give you a substance that would take away the pain, 
it wouldn't take away the, the destruction. It wouldn't take away the damage uh-huh. or that you're being hurt. It would just take away the sensation of feeling the pain. You would take that substance immediately. You would take it consistently. And as soon as that substance started to wear off and you started to feel that pain again, you'd take the substance again. And that's what it is. That's that's the, 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 the heart of addiction is the relief of suffering with no other means possible. Hmm. Treatment is about teaching stress management, teaching boundaries, teaching all those kinds of useful things. But it's also about teaching connection and, and teaching, you know, the giving someone probably for the first time an experience where they're validated and they're safe and they're vulnerable and they have a real a real belief maybe or a real fostering thought that it'll get better things can be better mm-hmm. like hope if you will and that's a dangerous thing to throw around hope but that that is kind of the in the matrix of recovery is teaching hope and then giving them a roadmap to discover it mm. you know this is, you know, I, I'd have no comprehensive addiction because if I have depression or anything, I go to the gym. <laughs> you know, I go do something to work it off. And that's how I deal with my, oh, I don't want to deal with this today. But when I get to the gym and I come out, oh, I feel so good. Everything's, you know, yep. but then when I walk through the door, I have to deal with it. But the point is, is I can deal with it. You know what I mean? Just yep, roll that's, it. That's, a, that's a healthy uh, that's a healthy behavioral response to stressors. That's a healthy one. That one has um, you know the prognosis of you know future benefit. That that will that one will last. That one is lasting. Yeah, yeah. I can't even picture taking a pill. And um, right. um, I had a young girl stayed with me about eight years ago, and she was in her twenties, and it broke my heart when I saw her on all these depression medications and i'm like all you have to do is just go for a walk go to the gym let's go shopping or just go hang out at the mall you know and um um you don't have to buy anything but you know go get a cookie or something something positive (laughs) you know and uh, she liked it she goes oh this is so much she goes kathy you really care about me i said i don't just care about you but i'm your friend so it made her you know comfortable and and uh she moved on to california and and I'm hoping that she's doing quite well there. But, but anyway, but you just only thing I can do is be a friend, and uh, give them good ideas to shake it off. And she yep. did join the gym. She noticed she felt better. She goes, the gym is so much better. I said, isn't it better than taking all this stuff? <laughs> I mean, I yep. know you might need to be on something, but you can ease off of it. You know what I mean? I told her right. that because I don't. I'm not your doctor, and but you know you can talk to your counselor on that. And he's back. But anyway, um, um, a social worker, um, explain to us what a social worker really does. When you, Do you go into the home? Do you go into the hospital? Do you go in, you know, where, you know what do you do when... Um, well, me in particular, uh, I'm a forensic social worker, so I work in the criminal justice system. Ooh. And what I mainly do is do a set, do, do a brief screenings to try to learn the basic framework of a person, kind of their history, their you know whether they've had treatment, their criminal background, uh-huh. you know what their family structure looks like, just kind of a maybe a, an hour long conversation to kind of just explore them a little bit. Uh-huh. Uh, then I kind of um, figure out a place like okay, so they're on drugs and they have this charge and you know, those kinds of things. So I kind of figure out a place in the community and then I refer them to that place in the community, create a, a sentencing package so to speak for the judge, have the lawyer pitch it. Usually we get that. And then they go off to a treatment center, and that's where other social workers that deal with therapy um, take over, or other therapists take over, and then they they implement a treatment plan and do those kinds of things and go off to the races. So I'm kind of the broker. I'm kind of the middle guy that kind of figures out what the level of need might be, and then make the referral. Mm-hmm. So, but there are there are there are many levels of social work. Social work is one of the most diverse degrees out there. You can be administrators, you can be middle management, you could be um, uh, brokers like I am, or you can be actual direct care practitioners and offer therapy. So the social work degree is very, very diverse. But me in particular, I'm I'm kind of a pass through. You know, I, I kind of direct things. I receive and I, I, I assess and direct is what I do. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Well, hold on, Patrick. We're going to go into a commercial break, 
and we'll be right back after these messages. Hi, my name is Drusilla. I am the founder and owner of Drusilla's Closet. I've created a unique system to organize your pantry and kitchen. The system also works great in various parts of your home and garage. Also in my closet, I have unique furniture, art, and decor. You can find us on Facebook, Drusilla's Closet, or call at 435-224-9266. Hey, this is Brian with Better Accounting. Do you know how much money you will owe in taxes? Do you just blindly save money here and there and hope it is enough to cover your tax bill? There is a better way. Wouldn't it be nice if you could go into the tax season knowing exactly what your tax bill will be? Or better yet, wouldn't it be nice to make smaller payments throughout the year so you are not scrambling to pay your taxes? Better Accounting is the proactive solution to business taxes and accounting. Our team believes in regular communication with our clients. We meet with our clients multiple times throughout the year. Effective tax planning does not just happen during the tax season. If you are looking for a hands-on partner in your business, give Better Accounting a call. Call our office at 385-257-8866 or check out our website at betteraccounting.com. We work in all 50 states. Again, give us a call at 385-257-8866. We look forward to working with you. Hi there. I'm Nana Pete, and I'm the author and illustrator of The Greater Understanding. The Greater Understanding is a book that's great for families, individuals, young and old alike, it's available on my website at www.nanapete.com. Nana is N-A-N-N-A-Pete.com for $19.95. We also support Farm Rescue and their foundation, and we donate 25% of the proceeds to their foundation. I'm back with um, Patrick Adams. He's a social worker here in Utah. And he also works for the justice system to help, you know, many of their clients who are having issues with drugs. And Mike, I mean, Adam, I have a uh, somebody here named Mike. He has a question for you. He had, wants to know, sure. do you find that if more affected for a counselor or to help addictions to actually have had or have been one or have been one? I'm trying to read what he has here. So yeah, that's a really common question is, you know, do you, are you more effective as a counselor if you're in recovery than if you have just studied and gone to school and got into the industry? And, mm -hmm. and honestly, I don't really have an answer to that. What I can tell you is that some of the most brilliant therapists and counselors I've ever met uh, have never had a, a drug problem. There's, there's a gentleman named Dr. Gary Jorgensen who worked for the Haven for 30 years, probably one of the most astute recovery specialists and counselors and psychologists that that I've ever met, and he's never had a drug problem in his life. And also people that come through recovery, um, oftentimes, uh, you know, they, they're still struggling with some function in their own lives and they become uh, maybe somewhat rigid or somewhat, you know, maybe militaristic about their recovery and project that onto others. Mm -hmm. So all I can really say about that is I don't really care what someone's background is. I care what their understanding of what their job is and what their understanding of, of what their subject matter is and how well they've done their own work as a person, mm -hmm. if that I, makes sense. I think, you know, what Mike's saying here too is that, you know, someone who's been, you know, as a drug person and, you know, overcome things, but I can see some of it helping. But I like the, the fact that what you mentioned with the other gentleman that you know very well, who has never been on drugs, but I think he's probably because he, he studied it. Do you know what I mean? He studied right. it very well. He listened to the person because number one thing and any human being is listening. You don't want to lecture. You just listen and see where they're coming from and, you know, and then study it and, and video them and, and study their behaviors and, and cause you, you know, sure. it's like, it's like a fish in a fishbowl. 
we can watch it go around right. and around right. and we know where it goes right. and all that stuff but you know what i mean pretty way oh sure yeah and, and there's there's a very um pervasive like uh, understanding in the mental health industry and it's that you can only help people that you are more healthy than let me say it a different way it's like you can't help someone that's healthier than you so you have to do the, the secret to being a good effective counselor in my opinion and it's not even a secret it's just that the brass tacks of it is you have to do your own work right you right. have to you have to look at your you know heal your own wounds and and get you know, come to terms with your own suffering and you have to learn uh, how, what motivates you and how to deal with that and become productive and functional. And the more that you've done that as an individual, then the better you're going to be at helping someone else do it. Mm -hmm. So whether you're in recovery or whether you've just gone to school, it really, in my opinion, it really doesn't matter. What really matters is how honest that person is with themselves and how much work they've done on their own life and their own maturity. So that, that's kind of the way I would answer that. Mm -hmm. Okay, Mike has another question. He has a couple here he's throwing at me. Um, the last one here he's saying, what is the most effective way to reach that person in that dark world? Well, I'll tell you what. So um, rapport. Uh, rapport is the most, that, that is the most telling determination of success in therapy or treatment is how bonded the, the client or the, or the patient is with the therapist and how well the therapist can manage that rapport. Mm -hmm. So how you reach someone in the dark recesses of their life, you know, I'd have to sit down with that person and learn what, what's going on with them to know. Right. You know, with, with some people, it's humor. With some people, it's just honesty. With some people, it's, you know, fear mongering, like, oh, you don't want to go to prison, do you? I mean, it's really hard to tell what the road is that leads into someone. It's really hard to tell with, without actually sitting down with them and talking to them. So I don't think there is a magic formula. Or I guess the magic formula would be be honest, be genuine, be real, and just just be be okay. Just be a presence in that space that, that is stable and okay. Mm -hmm. And then good luck. Start talking to them. Okay, Mike has another question. He has, he wants to know, how do you keep them push? Uh, what, how do you keep them from pushing somebody away, just developing a healthy relationship, ultimately developing a healthy relationship? Well, life, relationships, if they're going to have a future, are by invita they're by invitation only. You can't, you can't force love on someone. You can just gift it to them. You can't demand it from them. They have to give it to you. So there, again, it's just, it, there really isn't a hard answer to, to that type of question. It's again, just be as genuine and honest and as, as you know, healthy as you can be as a person and then just walk out in the world. Uh -huh. And if, if someone's reluctant to engage, that's okay. That's what they're, that's where they're at. Uh -huh. If you go out into the woods and you try to lure a deer to, you can't run it down and demand that it, you know, come up to you and take food from your hand. You have to be very patient and very very stable and very consistent in, in how you offer what you have to offer. And as you do that, then hopefully they will become more trusting and more interested and more curious. And one of the, one of the most powerful things that I try to do is create curiosity. You know, if, if I can get them to ask me a question, then that's a road in. Then, then, I, then I know what they're thinking about a little bit. I, I get a, a feel for what they're interested in or what they're struggling with. And then I can start to build on that. So I try to entice the people I work with, be it in assessment or be it in therapy, to, to be curious about what we're doing or what I'm doing or what's going on or just find some, some line of curiosity where they actually ask a question. And that's a starting point. Mm -hmm. I just changed it a little bit. What, how serious is mar marijuana and is it dangerous drug? <laughs> marijuana, that's, it's a very interesting drug. It, it has, the, the simple answer is it's as dangerous as any drug. It really is. Now, every, every drug out there, believe it or not, has some place in the world. It, it has some use. It does. I mean, there's crack and there's meth and there's whatnot, but there's prescription, you know, Adderall and there's prescription amphetamines that are just like meth. So, you know, every drug out there has some use, be it very limited or be it expansive, who knows? Well, what, what marijuana tends to do is it because it's not such an overwhelming drug like meth or heroin, it tends to kind of hide in the cut and appear to be innocuous. But what I've observed with marijuana 
is the later you are in, in your development, the less it affects you over, over, overall, but the earlier it, you become very much emotionally arrested. You, you, it, it does not allow for proper emotional processing intellectually. Mm-hmm. So you become kind of at odds. You just don't grow very much emotionally. You just don't. And by and large, some people are different. Some people can smoke and have no problems and move on with their lives. That's great. Other people, more people than not, I would say, if they chronically use it, if they chronically use it, it's going to affect their emotional stability, their emotional ability to regulate, and their and their overall maturity. It's going to impact it negatively. I've seen it for years. Wow. So what do you think about when they pass a law like in Colorado and some of the other states? Um, Las Vegas has it. I mean, I had a friend who went to, took his family to a show in Las Vegas, but in the lobby, he smelled marijuana so bad that he, t- he took his family away, you know, just, yeah, because they well, can't what, be here. What you, see in the lobbies, what you see in the lobbies of Las Vegas is alcohol just pushed upon you all the time. And that is a far more dangerous drug than anybody was willing to admit possibly. I mean, it's, it is an incredibly dangerous drug, alcohol. It's way more dangerous, I would say, than marijuana. Really? All the absolutely absolutely oh, okay. so and, and, and prohibition just to talk about that for a minute is in no way useful or a solution or, or or beneficial prohibition doesn't do anything of value to the drug problem nothing are you serious probation absolutely you mean probation Pro- prohibition like making oh. it illegal you know, oh. making it illegal so yeah it well, is- the, the, the way the way to to help like a population like become more healthy isn't to restrict necessarily. It's it's to, it, it goes way back to the beginning. It's about nurturing relationships. It's about proper uh, um, developmental experiences. It's it's about you know uh, bonding and being stable people. If they're not, if their lives don't need relief that they can't otherwise find, then they're not going to become addicted. The ninety five percent of all people that try drugs don't become addicted. They don't. It is a very small population, a very small sliver of, of the human population that actually becomes to the point where they go to jail, the point where their lives fall apart, to the point where they, they become morbidly dysfunctional. That's a very small population. Most people have enough constitution or enough stability or enough skill or whatever they got in their developmental experience to kind of to be invested in their life and to be invested in being you know primarily sober. Recreational drug use is a very real thing. And recreational drug use isn't you know a, a destructive problem in our society it isn't it's it's addictive drug use it's chronic drug use and it's all the criminal behavior associated with it and that's attached to prohibition that's attached to being illegal mm-hmm. they're in portugal they legalized all drugs and if you look at portugal i encourage anyone to start doing research on portugal and what happened in their country before and after they abolished prohibition and it's unbelievable what happened it's unbelievable and i'm not going to go into that in detail i encourage people to go investigate that for themselves but it impressed the hell out of me. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Because there are drugs, the marijuana is used for like cancer patients, you know? There you go. And, and it eases most, their pain. Yeah. And, That's right. And, but they're That's not right. becoming addicted. They're out in their backyard, you know, or they're... About this. So, Kathy, <laughs> you, you, you're a, you have an, an allergy to opiates. Uh-huh. Well, what are you going to do if you have a major accident or a major injury or major surgery? Like, what are you going to do? Maybe, maybe it would. Maybe you could go smoke marijuana. I don't know. <laughs> That's right. And because it's so stigmatized by prohibition, the it sounds like ridiculous. It sounds ridiculous. But it's like having a martini, having an edible marijuana you know, pill or, or, or rather cookie or something – you know, or taking a tincture of marijuana for your pain, for arthritis, or for a surgery. It's like that. Why isn't that reasonable? Why isn't that reasonable versus taking an opiate? Which heroin, opiates, those are some of the most dangerous drugs that have ever come into the human experience. Repeat that again. You can't die. You can't die from marijuana. You can't. It doesn't affect the parts of the brain that control respiration and heart rate. Heroin will absolutely kill you. Opiates will absolutely kill you. They suppress respiration and heart rate, and you just fade out and you die. So it, it's like opiates are exponentially more dangerous than marijuana ever could be. However, there are concerns about chronic marijuana use. It's it's the Goldilocks principle. Moderation. There it is. Because hmm. I had some friends who had cancer, and it was something that eased them. You know, they felt relaxed. Absolutely. And yes. they can tolerate the pain that they were going into. 
and there you go. And and they're way more present if they're using marijuana than they are if they're using an opiate. The opiate will absolutely check them out of the of the environment. Hmm. Interesting. Wow. I um um I'm I'm you know I hate to say the only thing I take every day is a vitamin, <laughs> but um, <laughs> and I'm I'm up there in age, but. Uh, I am very grateful for that so far, knock on wood. And then when I did have shoulder surgery, I've had it, you know, due to sports and gymnastics when I was younger. Um, uh, I had to have that done. And man, I still will never forget that. I lined it up on my kitchen counter. Yeah. Like, I got 15 prescription drugs here. And this yeah. one, no, 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 no. So I started pushing the ones away. I just did not like. And I'm like, makes me dizzy, nauseated, and sick. Ugh. But anyway, and I said, I'll deal with the pain, but I'm not taking that. <laughs> yep, but it go. was coming very close. I think I'm like, but where do I go for marijuana? <laughs> Especially in my state of Utah, they don't allow anything. But, um, you know, where can I go to smoke some of this? <laughs> really, I think might make me feel relaxed and and chill out. You know what I mean? And, and to be yep. able to tolerate the pain so my body can heal. So. Yep, Yes, the body is amazing piece of work as it can heal itself if people just allow it, you know. Yep, absolutely. Just allow it. Well, Mike has been on here. He's a guest on the show. I mean, well, he's been tapping in and asking a lot of questions and giving me good advice. And and uh, he's Mike from Tampa Bay. Ooh, I like Tampa Bay. But anyway, um, the Buccaneer probably is a Buccaneer fan. <laughs> But anyway, so we like to thank Mike from Tampa Bay. He's on here, and and um, but anyway, I, I really like. I would like to you to come back on um, maybe like every other month or so, sure. or quarterly. I know you're very busy. I know you're super busy, and I'm very honored to have you on my show, and uh, especially to talk about these matters that come to our minds and we wonder and curious because the media just loves to stretch things you know that and oh, yeah. uh and just to get a story it's more or less but yeah it's it's interesting out there and how the world we're living in and no no this and no no that but usually what they're saying no to is really what we need just to relax you know i mean come on marijuana is a plant do you know what i'm saying <laughs> It's it's well, from the earth and and higher power or God or whatever you want to say or the Indians smoke it, <laughs> you sure. know the tribes they they smoke that stuff a lot. But anyway, right, right. and it was the ease and they think of the next war or tribe that they're going to go into. You know you can think more clearly. This is from what I heard. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Um, uh, so is there anything else we want to add to, oh, how can somebody, if they wanted to communicate with you, would you allow that or you want oh, yeah, to get absolutely. out some information here? Yeah, sure. Okay. Um, what would you like? Yeah. Do you have a website or anything? I don't really no, I, I have a web, no, I don't have a website. Um, I could, I could probably just give an email if that's useful. Yes. An email would be wonderful because let everybody know it will be on the profile later after the show and, uh. You, you can write to him if you like. So what is your email? It is my first initial and last name. So it's padams1972 at yahoo.com. So padams, A-D-A-M-S. And yep. what's the other part? You know what? Let me actually get, give a different one. Okay. Let's go with the Gmail. Yeah, it's going to be easy. Yep. padams3106 at gmail.com. 3106. Okay. So it's Adams 3106, did you say? Or is it P? It's P Adams. Okay. P Adams 1036 at Gmail. 3106. 3106. Okay. Got gmail.com. But it will be on the profile for all those who are just jumping on board and want to write to you. Now, hopefully, Mike from Tampa Bay wants to you. But because anyway, um, and I think this is really, really great. Oh, he's giving out his email too. Oh, he got it. He wrote it down. Wonderful. But anyway, um, I just like to thank you so much for coming on the show. I mean, we can go. I mean, I can start another. You got another ten minutes? Can we talk? So I, I want to add one more question. Is that sure. okay? 
So we talked yeah. about the marijuana, which is, some people say marijuana fries the brain. I don't think so. No, it doesn't. No, no. Just makes you relax, from what I heard. It, it does have some long-term you know, effects for chronic users, but like I said, all things in moderation. Right, right, right. And um, what, you know, what type of treatments would you recommend for, you know, for the legal system, like the um, traditional treatment for drugs for the legal system? You know, honestly, um, treatment, what type of treatment is relatively um, unimportant, if you will. What's really important is client buy-in and rapport with, with their, their provider or their therapist or their treatment worker. Oh. If they feel connected to the person that they're talking to and they feel motivated for recovery, you could play chess or checkers and structure that into some kind of a recovery model if you wanted. So the modality of care is really kind of insignificant if you don't have good rapport and if you don't have a client buy-in. And what's even more important than client buy-in is the rapport. If that client respects and feels respected by the therapist or the caseworker or whomever they're working with, if they feel you know, respected and bonded, they've got a high prognosis because they're going to want to perform for that relationship. Mm -hmm. It's like the coach that has all kinds of charisma. You know, when that coach walks in on the field, those players want to make that coach happy. Right. Because they it's really bond it to true. And so the same is true in recovery and the same is true in therapy. And if you, if you are a provider or a, or a, treatment, a caregiver or whatever, or, or just a, a mentor that can create that energy between you and the person you're working with, where they really feel bonded to you. First of all, it's a sacred trust relationship. And second of all, that's, they're going to be motivated to want to, to want to please you, if you will. And that is a valuable thing. It, it's, it's, it's a great responsibility. It's a great responsibility for, for the provider that if you can create that, then that person who's receiving your care is going to potentially benefit far more than if they went to the best rehab on earth and they didn't have any way to connect or bond. Mm -hmm. um, what do you think about, you know, years down the road, does therapists or counselors still stay in touch with them or you know, maybe still have yeah, them? Yeah, I, I get phone calls all the time. And, and it, there are phone calls where, you know, they just check in and say hi, or they say, hey, man, you know, I'm struggling with this. And so we'll talk for a little bit. We'll have maybe just a little bit, uh, you know, maybe go to lunch or something. Mm -hmm. It won't be anything formal or official. And if they if they need more care or, or if there's something they're dealing with that's beyond their capacity and a conversation won't help, then I'll refer them to somebody that can help them. I won't take them into into therapy once again because I'm not a practitioner anymore. I don't I don't do um, direct care anymore. But I'll make sure that they get put in the right place and with someone that I trust. Mm -hmm. And you have a list of those people that you trust. I do. Yes. Wow. Wow. Yes. And do you think that the legal system is fair with these people that are out? <laughs> well, that's a loaded question. The legal system is the best we've got. So that's what we're working with. That's pretty much all I'll say. Okay. <laughs> okay. We yeah. can talk about that another show. Yeah. That's, <laughs> That'll that's take another question. hour. <laughs> but Absolutely. yeah. Well, Adam, I mean, Patrick, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show and uh, you're coming back. So I'll, I'll schedule you okay. for October and uh, okay. get you back in. And, and uh, for those who are, um, you know, listening today that, uh, you know, thank you so much. And uh, we got his, I think you're going to get some emails from some people. And, uh, and but anyway, well, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on. And you have a wonderful day. And we thank you. And, uh, and my listeners, thank you. Well, I, it was a great pleasure. I had a really nice chat with you. A really nice time. And thank you. You're welcome. And for everybody, thank you for listening to the Kathy Lee Parker Show. Until then, have a great day. Have a great day.